You are listening to First Church Charlotte. I want, to, I want something spiritual to happen in our hearts here today. I, I've been guilty a few times of being in the service, and my mind never really got there. I was there, but my mind never really got there. So let's, let's make an intentional effort right now to join ourselves, uh, to bring our, our minds under subjection, to unify our hearts and our spirits. Would you, would you pray that prayer with me right now? Lord Jesus, we want your word to speak in our life. We don't want to rush through the moment where you would uh, deliver uh, eternity in the form of these truths to us. Lord Jesus, let us be focused, let us receive, let us be changed that we might manifest your heart to this world. And can the church say amen? I have a, a title today that I hope piques your interest, um, a little bit different take. I have never preached in this manner uh, exactly before. My title is, The Gates Are Made of Pearl. The Gates Are Made of Pearl. Uh, this statement is, of course, found in uh, toward the end of the book of Revelations, where we are describing that heavenly city that would descend from God. And we often will quote the images of that city. The streets are gold, the walls are jasper, and the the gates are pearl. Uh, But I don't know that I've ever uh, heard a message preached on that as an ideal, as a spiritual symbol. And so I want to do that today. But I'm going to need your help because I'm kind of in the mood to preach a couple hours. And uh, you don't want me to do that. That would not make you happy. So if you'll say amen, every time you say amen, it, 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 it cuts off a minute of of that two-hour message and so oh yes my god that's some fun preaching (laughs) I want to start by reading you a great quote Uh, you probably will not have heard this quote before Um, it is a quote from the 1700s so the language will perhaps be somewhat difficult to your modern ears we don't speak quite this formally uh, now uh, but in the 1700s it was not uncommon for them to speak in a very formal a very uh, even uh, idea dense way Uh, a lot of fancy uh, types of communication not so much now we speak more casually now Uh, this is from uh, the pastor the preacher uh, Lemuel Haynes and it is Uh, from a sermon he preached entitled the support or excuse me the suffering support and reward of faithful ministers when professed friends of God forsake the ministers of Christ it is attended with circumstances peculiarly aggravating the sweet counsel and communion they have taken together are now interrupted Mutual confidence destroyed. The parties exposed to peculiar temptations, which renders it difficult to retain that forgiving spirit manifested by the holy apostle when all men forsook him. And then he quotes the apostle Paul I pray that God, I pray God that it might not be laid to their charge. I'm going to come back to this quote, but if we were to say the same basic thing in a more modern style of speech, we would say something like this. It's really sad when uh, people who claim to be uh, church people, they claim to be friends of God, they come into conflict with the ministers of God, and there's this tension and, and, and strife within the church. And 
Um, when this happens, the communion that they had together, the council they had together, uh, it's interrupted and the confidence that existed between them is destroyed. And the result of that is this set of temptations to them um, that make it really difficult to maintain a forgiving spirit. Uh, they're, as it were, invited to be in conflict, not uh, invited to be uh, tender-hearted one toward another. Um, we should, all of us, have the attitude and the spirit manifest by the Apostle Paul when he said, I pray that God would not lay it to their charge when he was referring to the people who had forsaken him. That's kind of an idea structure of what he's saying. Now, who was he and why was he saying that? We'll come back to that in just a moment. I want to say something you know and you have said yourself. It is fundamental to our church culture here and you know it and you said it and I want to not just say it back to you but I want to emphasize it. Um, It is impossible to understand Christianity without having a deep even a theological understanding of love. It is impossible to get church right, to get ministry right, to get a doctrine of redemption right, to get the hope of salvation right, to get the idea of Christ dying for others, to understand why God would do that, to understand why Jesus was born, to understand why there is a cross upon which he was crucified, to understand why the church is a celebration of redemption, to understand why the angels rejoice when one sinner repents. You will miss the heart of God and you will miss the systematic theology of the New Testament if you do not understand the foundation of love that undergirds everything that happens in Christianity. Love is the why. Why would God forgive us? Why would there be a created world? Why would he not give up when Adam and Eve sinned? Why would he send prophet after prophet and teacher after teacher? And why would a sacrifice finally be made, a perfect righteous sacrifice? Why would there be a perfect lamb? Why, why, why? Why would he be resurrected on the third day? Why would he invite you to repent of your sins and take on his name in repentance? Why would it be a good thing that he ascend to heaven and the Holy Spirit be given to all that we might be the very tabernacle and temple of the Lord. Why? If you do not have a theological understanding of love, you will not get it. Love is heaven's why. Uh, John will say it this way. Beloved, let us love one another for love is from God and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. And this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. That's the Apostle John writing uh, in his first epistle, chapter 4. All of these notes are available to you on the website if you want to follow along. The word here in the original is, of course, the Greek word agape or agapos, uh, referring to God's love, divine love. Now, the unique understanding of agape love is that it does not need to be returned in order to be perfected. I think this is a helpful concept for us because All of us know uh, love. We know the love that is in our hearts. We know, if you'll forgive me for saying this way, we we know a human love. We know a, a slightly imperfect love. It's the kind of love that is most perfectly expressed when it is reflected. 
Uh, it's difficult for us. No matter how good you claim you are or you can be so righteous, your feet don't touch the ground when you walk. But I'm telling you, if you love somebody and they hurt you again and again and again, that love will become less perfect and less perfect and less perfect. And pretty soon it's just a mantra you repeat to yourself through clenched teeth. You see, we don't have perfect agape love. We have the love that is capable for us to experience and know in in the same manner that some things have to be amplified in order to be effective. Like, for example, a laser can be so powerful it cuts right through steel, but light in itself was not that powerful. And so they take it and they amplify it by reflecting it between boosting optics that boosted and boosted and boosted and boosted. And finally, when it is released, least from those reflecting optics, it is powerful enough to actually be an effective tool or even in some cases a weapon. And our human love can be that way. When you fall in love and they give that love back to you and you give that love to them and they give that love back to you. And as the years pass and you're not just wooed with each other, but you're committed to each other. And yes, you get on each other's nerves, but you feel that commitment. And yes, you embarrass each other, but you feel that commitment and you live this reflected we're in this together when I win you win we're not in competition I'm preaching to married folks around here that's the good stuff I know when you're newly wedged and you have the shiver that's good too I'm not saying it's not but I'm telling you human love is most powerful when it is amplified one to another God's love is perfect whether or not it's returned God's love is complete whether or not you receive him or you curse him. Greater love hath no man than this that he laid down his life for a friend. But Christ went one better and he laid down his life for his enemies. In that, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. As Christians, we have a dual role, and I want you to understand this because this is fundamental to first church culture. I know I don't normally preach in reference uh, a style of church or a culture or a feel of church. I normally am just doctrinal uh, when I refer to the themes that are in my messages, but I want you to understand, you will understand better a lot of the feel of our ministry team here at first church once you understand this tool this dual role that we have in terms of Christian love. Now remember, God is not just the giver of love. God is the source of love. What do I mean by that? Love is the why that comes not from earth to heaven, but from heaven to earth. Heaven doesn't have a need. We have the need. Heaven has a why. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Do you see? All right. So as Christians, we have a dual role. And I want you to understand that. On one hand, we receive the love of God. That's number one. On the other hand, we demonstrate the love of God. You cannot get it right without both. We receive and we demonstrate. It's shown in the very image of the cross. We receive and we demonstrate. 
it. I've preached a lot about forgiveness in the last few weeks and, 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 and repentance and themes of that, of that manner because in the same manner we have received, what do we now do? We give. You see, we are recipients and we demonstrate and we receive mercy and we do what? We give mercy. We receive love and what? We give love. And if we do that, we become the kingdom of God here on earth. But when it stops, we cease being the kingdom of God here on earth. And we are only recipients, but we do not give. This is shown, I preached about this a good bit recently, in the example of those ones scripturally who can ask for forgiveness, but they cannot give forgiveness. Do you see? This also is shown to us in the message of the maps. There is a uh, Jordan River in the maps, if you look in the back of the Bible, and there is a a sea uh, of Galilee, and there is a dead sea. What is the difference? The Sea of Galilee has a river that flows through it, and stuff lives in it, and the dead sea has a river that flows to it. Nothing flows out of it, and so it it is a place of death. This image scripturally is over and over and over. That's why Paul, uh, John, and of course Paul too, but John, we'll get to Paul in a moment. He makes this statement. It's not enough for you to receive. You then have to demonstrate. And if you can't do that, you're not of God. We have dual role. Hear me. I'm going somewhere and I'm actually preaching about the gates are made of pearl. <laughs> the dual role to receive and to say it with me demonstrate or give now I'm going to get to Paul Ephesians chapter number two verse number four but God who is rich in mercy somebody say yes because of his great love with which he loved us that's heaven's why we were the ones with a need heaven doesn't have a need heaven has a why he his great love with which he loved us even when we were dead in trespasses even when we were dead in trespasses agape love made us alive together with Christ, Paul says it, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Now, like preachers everywhere, the apostle Paul repeats himself, for by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any should boast. Paul is going to talk about works, all right? He is going to talk in the terms of these dual roles. We receive and we give. We receive and we demonstrate. So the first role is what? We receive God's love. We believe that he is and he's the rewarder of them that diligently seek him. We believe that he loved us. He gave himself for us. We believe that when we bow our knee and repent of our sins, he does not meet us with harshness and anger, but like a father, he gently receives us and he rejoices in in our repentance and those beings of his heavenly court who know his heart best rejoice with our repentance and he receives us into his household and he throws a party that celebrates our return and he readopts us as a son and places the ring of family authority upon our finger do you see 
the first thing we receive what God has done. What's the second thing we do? We demonstrate. Now, if salvation was the result of our works, then it would not be Christ's accomplishment. It would be ours. So Paul wants to you to be clear that works cannot produce salvation. That's why he repeats himself, not just here, but in several passages. For by grace you have been saved through faith, that not of yourself, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any should boast. Now, Paul's not done talking about works. He talked about it in the first role. The receiving of God's forgiveness, the receiving of salvation, the gift of repentance, the spiritual adoption. None of that is our accomplishment. That's all about heaven's why. God loves you. He wants to see you blessed. He wants to see you included. He wants to see you in his kingdom. Can I have a big church? Amen. Amen. All right. Paul's not done talking about works. Now he wants to talk about works and he's going to do it in the very next verse. Verse number 10 For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. Now, I'm confused, Paul. Are we talking about works or are we not talking about works? No, we're talking about works. We're just with an understanding of works, of what works are and what works can be. In the first role, works can never produce salvation in your life. Works can never be an accomplishment of your goodness. But in the second issue of your Christian role, works can demonstrate what God has done for you. And works can demonstrate the heart of God. Understand these two roles. On one hand, we receive. We had nothing to do with it. On the other hand, we demonstrate. We are his workmanship for good works. See, not saved by works, but created in Christ for works. Our good works have nothing to do with salvation and everything to do with demonstration. A church is not an enforcement system. A church is a demonstration system. Look what God has done. I don't know what you think about him, but let me tell you what I know. I once was blind and now, maha, I behold very, very, verily see. You can think what you want, but I had leprosy and I've been healed. You can say a church ultimately at its core is not an enforcement system. It is a demonstration system. And so we receive love and we demonstrate love. When a church is right, it is not just receiving, it is demonstrating This is important. This is biblical. This is why the apostles will say quite harsh things like this. If you want to know if your religion is true, ask yourself if you care for needy people. Do you take care of orphans? Uh, Do you take care of widows? Uh, These kind of things are true religion, the apostles will say. This is quite a challenge. What are you getting at? It's not enough to be a recipient of love. Uh, We must demonstrate love to our world. And we're challenged in this manner and we're given an image of love so high and so glorious that we spend the rest of our lives of faith pursuing divine love not as excellence in self but as demonstration of heaven's why 
And so the Apostle Paul will write language so beautiful, it's almost painful to read. It's so beautiful. And it is a type of spiritual poetry. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love beareth all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. And now Paul is going to use this poetic, beautiful language to give you this truth. Love never ends. Everything down here is going to end. The ferment is going to pass away. It's all going to end, but Paul wants you to know love never ends. He's saying the same thing John says. Love is of God. Love is divine and we both receive and we demonstrate. By this shall all men know that you're my disciples, that you have love one for another. But having laid out a quite impressive message on love. Thank you very much. I was hoping for a compliment and I have arranged to give myself one. After having so beautifully demonstrated a heavy burden of love that makes all of you wonder if you could not do better if you tried. If it doesn't, then I failed in my efforts here today. After having done that, I want to shift to the second gear and I want to confess to you that love can be hard. Love can be stinking hard. Let me give you another truth. There is pain in love. Remember that quote I read to you? Lemuel Haynes, Pastor Lemuel Haynes. I'm going to tell you his story. He's a a historical figure that many of you will not have heard about, but fascinating individual. Born in 1753. Um, He uh, was abandoned by his, uh, his... his parents at three weeks of age and he was raised in a farmer's house who treated him as an indentured servant which means he was free but he was charged for the price of his upbringing he had to work off the cost of it which if that doesn't bother you then you don't have a heart as soft as mine Um, although the idea of charging my kids is suddenly uniquely attractive to me Um, Think of a boy who gets to the age where he realizes he's not there because anybody cares about him. He's there because he's working off. Can imagine how hard that would be? Um, He could have been very bitter, but let me tell you a few things about him you did not know. He worked as this indentured servant as a child. He was a veteran of the American Revolution. This is 1700s. This is is way back. And um, he was the first African-American preacher ordained by any religious body in America. The very first. African-American preacher ordained by any religious body in America. And I'm going to shock you even more. He was the first African-American pastor in American history who ever pastored a mostly white congregation. Now, that's not super uncommon nowadays. Let's, let's be honest. It's not. Um, I would say it's common, but it's not super uncommon. But in this day and time, it is a testimony to his ability. It is a testimony to his powerful ministry. And it is a testimony to overcoming hardship. And so I take my hat off first to him, and I also take my hat off to that congregation, which was very ahead of their time. So, um, however, uh, times change, and um, he, after some uh, 30 years of ministry there, he, uh, the church had prospered, but as he got older, he, uh, the church wanted him to retire, and this isn't really uh, that uncommon. Um, a lot of churches uh, make changes, and you all have heard stories, and it's always sad when it happens, and uh, he got to an age and a time 
time in the church wanted him to step down from the pastoral role there. And he preached, he preached one last message. And the quote I read to you was uh, the message he, pre- he preached to his congregation of 30 years that he is, was his goodbye uh, message. He, had, he felt like he had been unfairly attacked. He felt like he'd been unfairly treated. But if you read the sermon, which it's available, actually, you can read it. Um, he was very careful to not let his, uh, uh, his frustration seep into his, uh, into his message. And in many ways, it is a beautiful example of how to speak the truth without being petty or immature. Um, there's a biography of his life written by Timothy Mather Cooley. And if you read it, you discover just how intelligent and just how brilliant and even witty. He was an extremely um, entertaining individual. Uh, his theology was deep. His theology wasn't our theology. Uh, he was more of a Calvinist, uh, but a great man with great character. Uh, unlike many of the men of that time, um, a lot of times looking back from modern times, it's sometimes you have to do tri- triage on people's character because there's something that was fine in their day that's not fine in our day, or it turns out that they weren't who they claimed to be. In his life, there is no smidgen of shame. In his life, there is no smidgen of tarnish or ugliness. And even on this difficult goodbye sermon, he gives a good example of his story. And he preaches from the Apostle Paul uh, saying he had finished his course. Um, He titled it, The Suffering Support and Reward of Faithful Ministers. And it is as good a model of a pastor addressing the pain in ministry in a public way that you'll ever read without being vindictive. Let me read you a quote that, uh, from this, this, this uh, Pastor Haynes. He said this, um, that a man does not appreciate the worth of souls and is not greatly affected with their dangerous situation is not qualified for the sacred office. He doesn't just let himself get bitter and angry. Uh, Here's a reality. All of us want to be uh, used of God. We do. I would say the vast majority of us do. I would say the vast majority of us here today are are strong believers or fairly strong believers. Um, I think the vast majority of you are past the stage where you've decided to become a Christian. And now you're in the stage of how God will use your gifts, your callings, your talents for his kingdom. So let's be full disclosure here today. All of us want to be useful to God. All of us want to be powerfully used of God. All of us want to lead others to a place of hope and spiritual renewal, but none of us want to hurt very much. I got an amen from this side and I got to chuckle from this side. Good to see you, my brother. Uh, down from the mountains. Got back to get some real Holy Spirit around here. <laughs> and so, I, I want you, I just, I think we ought to be honest about this. I want to be used of God. Say, say, look at somebody across your road and say, I want to be used of God. Tell them. I want to be used of God. Now tell them this, but I really don't want to hurt very much. I don't. I mean, no sense acting formal about it. I I don't want to do it. But the truth is this, except a grain of wheat fall to the ground and die, it abideth alone. But if it will die, then there's a great harvest that is brought out from among it. There is a great trap in the modern church, and that is we live as though this life is our reward, and that is false theology. This life is not our reward. This life is our ministry. The next life is our reward. 
I hope you have a great vacation. You probably deserve it. I hope you have money in the bank. You know you do. I hope you're better than you've ever been at everything you've ever tried. I'm sure that is true. But let me tell you a truth. You don't need to fall into the habit of thinking your reward is in the here and now. This is the time where which we take up our crosses. What's the whole point of a cross? A cross is that instrument of suffering with which a sacrifice is made and a people are redeemed. What is the ministry of Christ. He came to a broken world and gave his life to make it better. And he didn't just do it once. He turns to all of his followers and he says, you should take up your cross. You have a redemptive work in your world. You want to be my disciple? Look at your world. How is it broken? Give your life to make it whole. You see, we want to be used of God, but we don't want to hurt very much. But I want to tell you a truth about uh, serving the Lord. If you are used of God, you will find that it is a way of spiritual contest. It is involved with attacks. It is involved in painful journeys. There, One way to minimize your hurt is not to care about other people. But once you start praying for people, it's going to hurt you when they do dumb things. I'm just telling you the way it is. As long as you don't hold anybody's name in intercession, it won't make matter much to you when they do dumb things. But when you've been praying for them and you've been carrying them in your heart and you've been calling out their name and they do dumb things, it's going to hurt. As long as you don't get close to anybody when they say something ugly about you, it won't matter much. You didn't expect much from them anyway. But once you really open up your heart and you just take your heart and ball it up like a baseball and throw it at them as hard as you can. And then you hear what they said about you. It's going to hurt. There's no other way. And if any preacher stood right here and told you different, I would tell you they are not doing you any favors. Here's the reality. This life is not the reward. The next life is the reward. This life is the work. This life is the pouring out of our talent abilities, gifts, and very days as a drink offering before the Lord. So I want you to first of all be drawn away from the temptation of the world, which is to make you think that this life is as good as it gets. No, this life is just an entryway into an eternity with our creator. It must get better than this because the days of a man are short and full of trouble, which I like to say you're born, the doctor smacks you on the rear end, goes downhill from there. Uh, I want to give you three truths, all of you who I am imploring today, not just to be recipients of love, but to be demonstrators of love. All of you who are past salvation. I'm not saying that we are some way graduated. We all have to keep an attitude of repentance. Don't misunderstand my point. But you're able to move on whether or not you want to serve God. And now the question is, how can I be a tool, a vessel in his hand? How can I be used? I want to give you three truths. And the first truth is this if you love you will hurt but it will be worth it if you carry anybody in prayer it's going to hurt but it's going to be worth it if you give yourself for others if you take some of the money that you enjoy and you give it to someone needier than you uh, it's it's going to hurt but I promise you it's absolutely going to be worth it if you want to make Christianity shallow take sacrifice out of it hide your cross talk yourself out of carrying anybody else's burdens turn it into a blessing scheme for you and yours and you'll have a good positive mental attitude scheme, but you will not have a cross in your gospel. 
You'll be followers, but you'll be followers without a cross. Jesus said, if any man would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me, which gives us this implication. It's possible that there are some who follow and never deny themselves and some who follow and never take up their cross. Two conditions that are set upon an ending, which goes like this. First, you need to deny yourself. Second, you need to find redemptive purpose in your life. And then you need to understand that the path of Christ is dependent upon these things. It's not enough to receive. We must demonstrate the love of God. And if you love, hear me, you will hurt, but it will absolutely be worth it. Our flesh will trick us and make us think that if God loved us, he would keep us from pain. If God was on our side and we truly were favored, then God would keep us from pain. But we would have fallen right back into the trick, right back into the snare to think that this life is our reward. No, this life is our journey. The next life is our reward. The second truth I want you to carry with you from this place today is this. Pain isn't spiritual dying. Pain is spiritual birthing. But it will feel like spiritual dying. It will feel so much like spiritual dying that even the Apostle Paul will look at the journey of his life and say, My God... I feels like I get crucified every day. And in fact, I think I'm doing something right. Oh, that's not a popular message, I know. But I want you to know, there is in the core of this gospel, not just the recipient, not us being the recipient, but also us demonstrating these things that manifest heaven. Consider Joseph. If Joseph wanted to be critical of God, he had every reason. God indeed had given him dreams of how he would be exalted. And then, while he's still a teenager, he's sold into slavery, betrayed by his brother. Uh, And it goes from um, good to bad and from bad to worst. Most scholars think that he was sold into slavery around the age of 16 or 17, just as he's coming into himself, just as he's trying to kind of get an an identity going. Uh, His brothers sell him into slavery, and from there, uh, it would have been so easy to say, God, this is a joke played on me by you. You gave me visions of grandeur and then a reality of pain. And because of that pain, I'm not going to serve you. I'm going to lean upon my own devices. But Joseph does not do that even when bad goes to batter. (laughs) He's sold by his brethren. He is betrayed by his employer's wife in spite of his faithful service. He is forgotten by the friends he's made in prison and he seems to have been ignored by a God who had promised him a position of leadership and power. All he has known from 16 into his to 30 has been the sense of failure, the sense of suffering, the sense of destruction. And 10, 15 or more years pass. That's a long time to spend in life's waiting room. That's a long time to spend hoping for something 
something better to come. That's a long time to hurt, a long time to feel betrayed, a long time to feel forgotten. And it's easy to think that God's not working, but Joseph, it just so happens that while you are waiting, uh, God is working. He's working in the courts of Egypt. He's preparing a day when you're going to be elevated. He's working in the weather patterns of the globe because out of these patterns are going to come seven years of plenty and seven years of famine. He's working in your brother's lives because they need to be saved too, Joseph. Can you see beyond your own story, Joseph? Can you see a bigger picture? Pain feels like spiritual dying, but it's really spiritual birthing. No one's excited about this message. It's okay. I really felt like I needed to preach it anyway, so you don't have to like it very much. Um, The third truth. So let me repeat my truths. Number one, the first truth is if you love, it will hurt, but it will absolutely be worth it. Number two, pain isn't spiritual dying. It just feels that way. It's spiritual birthing. And lastly, pain in a spiritual way becomes a portal to power. But that's a misleading way to say it because it makes you think that at some point, if you suffer enough, you emerge from some you know, Kung Fu temple with powers that no one else happens. No, no, it's not a causal effect. It is a preparatory effect. And the result of it is not that you have some superhero power that you now can fly or change clothes in a phone booth. You now have the power of preparation where God could use you and it doesn't destroy you. Let me show you this in the scripture. Paul writes 2 Corinthians chapter number 12. And he's trying to tell them a personal testimony in the beginning of the chapter. But he feels uh, embarrassed about it because it's a pretty good testimony. And basically he's saying I was caught up. I don't know if I was in the spirit. I don't know if I was in the body. But I was caught up into heaven. And I I shouldn't even be telling you guys about this. Because, you know, it's easy to think I'm boasting here. uh, But I I, I was caught up. And, um, you know, uh, great things were happening. And... uh, Lest I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of the revelations. A thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to buffet me. Lest I be exalted above measure. Uh, concerning this, I, I, I pleaded with the Lord three times to get out of this. I pleaded with the Lord that this might depart from me. And the Lord said to me, I was very disappointed. My grace is sufficient for thee. I hated that answer. My grace is sufficient for thee. And the Lord doesn't stop. For my strength is made perfect in weakness. My strength is made perfect in weakness. So Paul changes the bragging story. Therefore, most gladly, I rather boast in my infirmities. That the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities. In reproaches, in needs, in persecutions, in distresses. For Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Pain can become a portal to spiritual usefulness. We call it power, but all it really is is spiritual usefulness. So let me end with these images of heaven. And musicians, you can come. I'm done. These images of heaven, and I love these. I know you do too. We, particularly if you read in Revelation 21, 21, where these images are given to us, Um, We read a few things in this passage. We read uh, things like the most famous, the streets are going to be paved with gold. Somebody say amen. 
That's exciting, isn't it? Remember the story about the guy who saved all his gold and went to heaven with a backpack full of gold and Peter was letting him in and asked what was in the backpack and the man said, I brought all my gold to heaven and, pave, and Peter said, why would, why would you bring pavement up here? I love that story. Um, so, streets are paved with gold. Now, you can, you can look at that literally and it could very well be literal. I'm fine with that. There's no problem with that whatsoever. But a lot of the images of what is happening are, I think, it's helpful to look at them or understand them prophetically and uh, see them not simply in a literal layer, but see them in a symbolic layer or a prophetic layer. Um, I think this is important because one of the reasons why the Jewish people miss the prophecies pertaining to the Lord Jesus Christ is it wasn't that they didn't know them, is that they could not see them interpreted any way than the way they wanted them to be interpreted. So um, uh, what would gold mean if we looked in biblical significance? What would it mean in biblical significance that God would build a city whose streets were paved with gold? Gold biblically represents the majesty of God and it represents the higher things that are not of this world. It is as though you took every idea you had and you put it in a purifying fire and everything was consumed and the only thing was left that was left was eternal values. Heaven is built upon eternal values. And heaven is built upon higher thoughts. Everything else is going to perish. But these truths are going to last forever. You heard of that one. The walls of the city are jasper. If we looked at that in prophetic, kind of like a symbolic way, what it would mean. What would it mean? This city doesn't need walls for protection. Uh, There's really no barbarians at the gates trying to take over heaven. (laughs) Um, There was not a big barbarian problem in heaven. And um, you don't need walls uh, to keep people out of the city and protect yourself from roving tribes of barbarians who want to come in and steal it. That's what walls are typically used for in world history. What are you saying if you look at it with prophetic significance? Jasper, biblical, manifests is, is the manifested glory of God. In biblical significance, Jasper represents the manifested glory of God. And you would see, imagine a city that God would build that was literally protected by the demonstrated majesty and glory of God. Do you see? The very walls of our protection, the place of our shelter, it's all in the glory of God. And lastly, this image, the gates are made of pearl. More specifically, each gate is as one pearl. Why would that image be in the scripture? You can go as far back in biblical interpretation as you have access to. You can even go into the rabbinical texts where these images of a pearl is used all the way back. And it all will signify the same thing. The uniqueness of a pearl. First of all, let me just say that pearls are beautiful because they have a luminosity to them that is multidimensional and multi-layered. When you look at it, there's almost as though there's a layer you can focus on and it glows. But there's layers behind that layer in focus that are slightly in blur, almost like a a photographer would call in bokeh. It's blurred. The background is blurred. And you look at a pearl, there's a level you can focus on and layers that seem to just disappear in blur. But how did it get there? How did those layers come to be? Well, 
you guys know. And it's the same interpretation as far back as you want to go in literature. A grain of sand, a tiny piece of rock, slips past the tight seal of an oyster's shell. And it immediately causes pain and suffering. And the oyster, trying to endure the pain, secretes a protein-like substance that coats that rock. And you would think that would fix it, but it's not fixed. And so the oyster does it again and again and again and again. And the pearl that we celebrate is the result. It is literally a trophy of suffering and survival. No one's excited about me preaching this today. But if I only preach stuff that makes you excited, I'm not being accurate to the word of the Lord. If you love, it's going to hurt, but I promise you it's going to be worth it. If you carry others in intercessory prayer, it's going to hurt. But I promise you, it's absolutely going to be worth it. If you love, sometimes it's going to feel like you're dying, but you're really not dying. You're being spiritually reborn. If you love, it's going to be literally a preparatory, uh, almost like a portal into spiritual uh, usefulness. In, In the same manner that a pearl is the testimony of surviving pain access to the city of God is made available with the sign of the successful survival of pain and the gates were made of pearl you are invited to pick up your cross And care about somebody that's not inside your circle of you and yours. You are invited to write someone's name down and say, I'm going to be a spiritual warrior in their life. I'm going to call their name out. I'm going to speak a spiritual covering over there. You are invited not just to receive love from heaven. You are invited to demonstrate that love. To some people who will not receive it. They will not answer you kindly. They may even persecute you. But it's going to be worth it all. I counted the cost and it wasn't just worth it. It was the best thing that ever happened to me. We cannot, and I'm I'm finishing with this. We cannot live with the idea that this life is the reward. This life is not the reward. The next life is the reward. You are invited to both receive and demonstrate the love of God. Would you stand with me all across the house? Would you direct your attention toward heaven right now? Would you let your heart be gathered together in this house? If you're watching this on our online, uh, wherever you are, would you just take a moment where you are and just close your eyes and in your own way, make sure you are inclining your spirit toward God you are as it were bowing yourself before the presence of God I want us to pray together right now Lord Jesus make us effective ministers of the gospel in our community 
It's not enough for us to receive. We must share. And Lord Jesus, as a church, make us effective ministers of faith and truth. Lord God, teach us the power of prayer and making a difference in someone else's life. Teach us the power of speaking the name of Jesus over the needs of another individual, another family, another neighborhood, another community. Oh God, let us not just receive, but let us demonstrate. Let us not simply get the blessings of heaven, but let them flow through us. Let us not just hold anointing for ourselves, but let us be vessels of transference where it flows over, not just enough for us, but it's overflowing and flowing out of the temple of our hearts and to a community so much so that there's waters to swim in and there is a hope, there is a joy, there is a renewal, there is a healing. I am praying today, oh God. I'm praying for First Church Leadership Team. Lord, don't let us ever get bitter because of things that have been said about us. I'm praying for myself. I'm praying for all my pastoral team. Lord, don't ever let us get so bitter at the things that have been said about us. Lord, you know there's been things said about some of our pastors, even recently, that's not fair. Lord, we cannot live there. We have to move on from that point. Because although it hurts, loving people is always going to be worth it. I pray for every person in this church who at times had reached out. They had prayed. They had encouraged. They'd even taught a Bible study. And then things kind of went sideways and hurts were given and wounds were inflicted, Lord. I'm praying today. I am praying today that none of us would be content and satisfied to live in a place of our own fear and protection. But Lord Jesus, let us open our hearts to this world. Let us open our hearts to the needs of our hour and our generation and manifest your heart in Jesus name I pray in Jesus name I pray all over wherever you are would you recommit yourself to the the work of ministry would you recommit yourself to intercessory prayer would you recommit yourself to the work that God has gifted ordained and called you to do in Jesus name Thank you for listening to First Church Charlotte. If this podcast has blessed you, please rate it with four or five stars. By doing so, you will help others find our free podcast and bless them. If you're in the Charlotte, North Carolina area, come worship with us at 4929 North Sharon Amity Road. For information about service times, church ministries, and so much more, visit us online at firstchurchclt.com. If you would like to help support our efforts, please text GIVE to 704-445-5353. We pray God's richest blessings to you. Come, worship with us.